Turn, if you will, then to our text this morning. It comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Thus far as the reading of God's holy word. There has been a time in each of our lives in which we can remember that we looked up to someone that we loved. Probably a good example that most of us, I think, share in is uh, an example that comes from our childhood. All of us have probably looked up to either our mother or our father. Right? As, we, as young children, we thought they were the greatest, most perfect people on earth and we wanted to be just like them when we grew up. Uh, we can think of many examples of this. Uh, you know, you have the father who works in the garage with the tools, working on cars and things of that nature. And what do you usually have? You have the son in the home with the fake tools and he goes around you know, fixing things in the house. Or you have uh, the young daughter who mimics the mother. You know, in the living room, she has her plastic, you know, kitchen with an easy bake oven and maybe some fake food, right? But children, as young children, they, they look at their parents with admiration. They, they want to grow up and they want to imitate them. They want to be like them. They, they hold their, their parents in high esteem as their young children. Now, we know as they get older, that will change. Um, but as young children, they're very impressionable and they don't know any better, right? Well, as Christians, we are called to revere the one whom we love. The one whom we love above all else. The one whom we look up to. Alright, this is what Paul in our text this morning is calling upon the Philippians to do. He's calling on them to live as Christians, as adopted sons and daughters, in what he will later in verse 15 describe as a, a twisted generation. And what's the great motivation for living in obedience to God? Well, it comes from the example which Paul has already given us of our Savior Jesus Christ. For we are told Christ humbled Himself and became obedient until the point of death. It was the very mission of Christ to come to earth and execute the will of the Father. And so as Christians now, we are called to humble ourselves, to obey the will of the Father and execute that revealed will He has revealed to all the saints here on earth. Right? For in Christ we see that the will of the Father was perfectly enacted. Christ did all that the Father had commanded Him. And why was that? Well, it was for the same reason that you and I are to obey the Lord. It is obedience rendered out of love. Obedience rendered out of love. Jesus says in John 14, verse 31, I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. You see, Jesus' obedience flows out of His love for His Father. He desires to please the One He loves above all else, to do all that He has commanded. Yet Jesus says that we too are to render obedience out of love. Right? He says, just as I love the Father, and in so doing, demonstrated to the world I love Him, you are to do the same. This is what Jesus says in John 14, verse 15 to His disciples. He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. 
love for God in Christ should motivate us unto obedience. And this isn't just obedience to those things which we like. It isn't just obedience to the things that don't have a great effect upon our life. It is obedience to all that God has commanded us. If I say, well, we are to obey God, we aren't to murder. If we think of that just externally, we know it has more to it than just an external murder. But that really, I would hope for most of us, isn't something that we think about often, going around and killing someone. No, we can all agree, hey, we shouldn't murder someone, we shouldn't take innocent life. It doesn't have much effect on our life. Externally, at least. But the question is, though, what about those commandments God gives which have a great effect upon our lives? What about then? What, what, what do we do then? Think about, for example, uh, the Sabbath. As we just read in our law, this, in, the, in the reading of the law this morning. Right? This can be sort of a, a touchy subject for some. But it has practical ap- applications for it, for how we worship God on the Lord's Day, what we do on the Lord's Day. Right? It changes our life. Uh, I recently, uh, a couple of days ago actually, ran into uh, a pastor of a local church here uh, in the, in the, around the city. And we got to talking a little bit. And he was telling me that, that uh, he and the four other elders of the church have spent the last year studying the London Baptist Confession and that they wanted uh, to adopt it and to start teaching it to the congregation. But he said, you know, one thing though, the one problem I have with it is I think at the, at the end of it, we're going to put like in a little appendix and say, but we don't follow the fourth commandment. Said, ah. You know? And so I asked myself, not out loud, but inside, why is it that the world has influenced Christians in such a way that we're willing to just toss one of the Ten Commandments out. It's not even, yeah, I hold to the Fourth Commandment. Now, how does that work out practically in our life? That may change between people. But no, they're willing to just throw it all aside. We just obey nine of the Ten Commandments, not Ten Commandments. Right? But we know why it is. Right? People don't want to throw a wrench in Sunday fun day. For most of us, we've all been there. So we know what they're thinking. I know for myself that was one of the, the very last things that I finally said, submitted myself to the Lord and said, yes, this is what Scripture teaches. And I didn't do it because I had a good theological reason why, uh, why, to, why to cast off the fourth commandment. But I did it because, like most, you say, well, I work five days a week and I only get two days off. And so if you tell me I have to worship God one whole day, that only leaves me one day to do what I want to do. That's not enough time. Right? This is what we're thinking. You see, the thought of the perpetual nature of the fourth commandment for a lot of Christians, for most of evangelicalism, causes them to shriek at the notion. Right? Causes them to shriek at the notion. But this is where demonstrating humility through obedience comes into play. The Lord knows what's best for you and I. He knows what we need. He knows how we function best. And He says, I've given you six days to do everything you want. Work and play but I set aside this one day in which you are to spend the day in the spiritual exercises I have commanded you, now obey. Yet, oftentimes we find justification for, for why we don't. Right? Lord, I, I, you, just, you don't understand. You know, 24 hours in the day, it's just not enough for me. I, you know, I need this day to be able to get things done. You know? 
But this is not the humility which Christ exhibited as He obeyed the Father. He, he subjected Himself fully to the will of the Father in all that the Father commanded. Right? We, each and every one of us, if we are truly saints, must subjugate our will to the Father's. Not only submit to His will, but make His will our very own. This is how we truly become obedient children. And love for God should be our motivation to do it. Not love for ourselves. Not, for, not love for the things that we like. Not love for the things that we think are best for our life. But love for God and His glory. And so the question is, is this what motivates you to obedience? And so Paul in our text today wants the saints to understand some certain things about obedience. And there are three things that we're going to break down in these two verses that we're looking at today that he wants them to understand. The first is that obedience must be constant. Obedience must be constant. Secondly, obedience takes work. And thirdly, the source of obedience is God. So obedience is constant. It takes work. It comes from God. So look at with me then once more at verse 12 where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So he's telling them that obedience is perpetual. And this isn't the first time that he said it. If you recall in this epistle, he said it before in chapter 1, verse 27. When he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Constant obedience in the life of the Christian testifies, it puts on display to the fact, not only to yourself, but to the world, that you are truly a believer. All right? Think about it. It's hard to continue to fake it, to fool people, if you're really not a Christian. You can only be a fraud for so long. Yet, throughout the church, all over the world, each and every Sunday, people fake it as they come into church. They live like devils for six days of the week and they come in and they dress nice and they shine their shoes and they want to give off the impression that they're a choir boy. But these are usually the type of people who won't sink themselves too deeply into a church. Right? They're not going to spend too much time trying to get to know you and for you to get to know them. And why is that? Because they don't want you to, they only want you to know them superficially because if you were to spend time with them, if you were to see them outside of church, if you were to be at their home and, and spend time with them, you would see that all they do on Sundays is put on a front. They put on a show, a facade. That's not truly who they are. Even those that we think we know very well could be putting on a, a double life. You couldn't, they could be someone totally different. But eventually, they're going to have to give it up. The facade is going to have to end. Right? Think about, for example, Judas. Judas, one of the twelve apostles. To all, he appeared to be a very pious man. A very virtuous man. I mean, he, he's the one who carried the money bag. They had to trust and respect Judas. No one expe expected that he would be the one to obey or betray Jesus. If you remember as they're all reclining at the table at the Passover meal and Jesus declares, one of you is going to betray me, what was their response? Was it, ah, it's Judas. We know that some, something shifty was about that guy, you know, couldn't trust him. No, it was, is it I? They, were, they would look at themselves before they would ever, ever look at Judas. Right? But you see, Judas could only put on this charade for so long. 
before his true self, before his true character came to light. Right? Judas didn't change. This is who he always was. But now it has just been made manifest. Remember, uh, for example, when, uh, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil. What was uh, Judas' response to that? Judas says, wait, 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 why are we doing that? We can take that oil, we can sell it, and we can give that money to the poor. Wow, that sounds very pious, doesn't it? Very virtuous of him. But what do we learn in John 12, verse 6, after he says that? It's recorded by John, not because he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And in being charged of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. See, Judas was being who Judas always was. Yet it eventually now came to life. Came to life. He wasn't concerned with that which was spiritual and eternal. He was always concerned about that which is earthly. This is why when Judas came before the chief priest, he said, if I turn Jesus over, what are you going to give me? Right? This is what he said in Matthew 26, verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? This was his request. It was what he could get out of it. And for Judas, all it took was 30 pieces of silver. And boom, he gave up the facade, the charade of his feigned obedience and love of Christ and betrayed him. Right? He couldn't hold it any longer. He couldn't keep up the, the, the facade and the, the fake act. Once his love for money overtook him, he could not be who, but be who he always was. A rebellious, lying thief who hated Christ. And as Christians, there should not be a facade. There should be no faking, no show. Obedience is to characterize our life for the entirety of our lives. This is what Paul says. Does this type of obedience characterize your life? Whether your pastor is sitting by you or not. Whether you are with a group of believing friends or you are around a group of unbelievers. Does your uh, behavior change? Does your conduct change? Does your talk change? It shouldn't. This is what Paul is reminding the saints of for the second time. Not only obey when I am present, not only obey when you know that I'm going to hear of what you're doing, but obey in my absence. Because Paul knows it's easy for them to put on a performance when he's around. But he says to them, who you truly are is who you are when I'm not present, when I'm absent. And the same goes for each and every one of you. Who you truly are is who you are when no one's around you, when you're at home, all by yourself, no one knows what's going on. That testifies to you who you are. Believer, unbeliever, obedient, disobedient. And yet this obedience isn't just an obedience of doing and not doing. It's also an obedience of thinking and not thinking. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every single thought you and I have is to be in obedience to Christ. And how does that come to fruition? Well, first it means we must be indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, our thoughts will not be captive by Christ. But secondly, what it means is that we must relinquish all pride that tells us that we know better. We must surrender our minds to the Lord. We must humble ourselves and allow God to take control of our thoughts. This doesn't mean, though, that we stop thinking, but what it means is that we fill ourselves with God's Word and God's Word then directs and guides our steps. Right? We set 
and seek out that which is heavenly, that which is spiritual, instead of allowing this world to fill us with garbage, which comes out of our phones and our in the computer and the television set. Instead, we could be using that time to read the Scriptures, to, to pray, to contemplate God, His divine attributes, His work of creation and redemption, all those benefits in which He has bestowed upon us. This is the very thing Paul says later in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, brothers and sisters, if you want to keep your mind off the junk and the garbage of this world, think about these things. This is what Paul's saying. Use your time wisely. All right? Whether anyone sees you or not, as believers, it is our duty to be obedient in every way, how we live as well as how we think. And if you only do this in the presence of others, perhaps you are not a Christian. For Christians are different from the world in this respect, with the respect to how we live, how we think, how we behave, how we act, all of it, the whole gamut. Right? And so the Christian life is one that is constant, it is continual, it is a life of obedience, but it is not only all that it is, Paul says. He says it also takes work. This takes us to the second point of the morning. Obedience takes work. We've all heard the saying that nothing worth having comes easy. Right? This is what Paul's been saying in this epistle so far. As he's been teaching them that as saints they're going to have experience glory through suffering. Right? That is one way in which it takes work. Another way, the, the same is true for godliness, Paul is saying here. Right? These are ways in which it takes work. It is not going to come easy. Now, as Calvinists, also we usually hear the argument that if God has uh, decreed all things to come to pass, if He is sovereign over all things, if you believe this, then essentially what you have become is robots. You guys have just puppets on strings. But is this the case? Is this what Paul says? No. As the second half of verse 12, Paul tells the saints to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to work out our work out our out our salvation. You see, but others may see this and say, see, it's up to us. We have to do things uh, uh, and, and, and with God's grace, in addition, we'll be saved. But is this what Paul is saying? Well, he's only saying this if he's talking out of two sides of his mouth. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says this, <clears throat> What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
You see, Paul says the one who works, the one who hopes to be justified by his works, God owes you then. That's not grace. That's not grace. Then you have grounds for boasting. But is this the example of Abraham that Paul gives to us? No. He says Abraham was counted righteous on the basis of faith alone, not on the basis of works. It's the one who does not work whose faith is counted as righteousness. Only these have the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ. You see here in this Romans passage, Paul is talking about justification. Uh, One aspect, one crucial aspect of salvation, but not the whole of it. And so Paul in our text this morning is telling the saints that in justification we are passive, yet in sanctification we are not only passive, but we are active. We must be doing something. This is what it means to work out your salvation. And so, yet the one who is working out their own salvation is not one who is seeking favor with God, for you already have it. The one who is working out their salvation is not trying to add to the works or merits of Christ. Christ has already done it all. But rather, working out your salvation is a byproduct of what God has already done in you. Right? This is why you can work it out because it is already something which you have. You can't work out something which is not already yours. And so you have been saved and now you are called to work out that salvation. And so another way to say it is to exercise holiness. Paul is calling them exercise holiness. As sanctification has to do with the internal renewal of the believer. And so as long as sin dwells in our bodies, sanctification is necessary. And so it consists in not only exercising holiness, but in mortifying the deeds of the body, right, and putting to death the flesh. Remember, Paul has said in Romans 6, Christ has died for you and I that we might walk in newness of life. If your life now is no different than your life prior to conversion, then you probably were never converted. If you don't desire to work out your salvation, it means you must not esteem salvation that highly. Because the believer, for the believer, we esteem salvation so highly that Paul says we have to carry it out with fear and trembling. We have to carry out this work of salvation with fear and trembling. Now that doesn't mean that you and I are to curl up in a corner somewhere in the fetal position, sucking our thumb in terror and despair. But rather, it means that we understand the seriousness of what it means to work out your salvation. And so, in obedience towards God's will, we are careful to maintain humility and submit ourselves to God's commands. Right? Out of reverence for God. Understanding our own weakness. Understanding our own frailty. And understanding that He is omnipotent God. And yet, this still might cause some to puff out their chest to boast in themselves, to say, see, I'm working on my own salvation. My neighbor, I'm way better Christian than they are. You know, I'm way more obedient than they are. See, but these people find confidence in themselves. They believe themselves to be the source of their obedience. But Paul quickly puts an end to that vain thinking in verse 13. Because he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so herein lies our third point of the day, which is the source of, Christians, of the Christian's obedience, which is God. You and I can do no good thing apart from the Lord. 
Right? This is something that the world does not understand. You ask most people in the world, are you a good person and what's their response going to be? It's going to be, yes, I am. And so you follow up with the next question. Well, why do you think you're a good person? And they might offer you answers like, well, uh, I'll, I happily give the shirt off my back. Uh, I, I help my el- elderly neighbor all the time. I donate to charity. I've uh, adopted one of those cute pandas in Asia. You know, something like that. But all their answers is, I, 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 I. You see, their problem is, is that they think that they're good by their very nature. And so they see no need for God. It's all about me. They're doing fine on their own. But this is not the picture which, which Scripture paints for us. We are not inclined by our very nature to do that which pleases God, to obey God. For what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. Our ability to do any good apart from God is as likely as to happen as it was for Lazarus by his own power to raise himself from the dead. Ain't going to happen. Not going to happen. And why is that? Because you and I do not have the will to do it, nor do we have the power to do it. This is what Paul is saying. God works in you to will and to work. All of salvation from beginning to end is God. He doesn't do half, you do half. He doesn't do 99%, you do 1%. This is the very thing that Paul already told the saints in chapter 1, verse 6. When he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Right? The Lord began this work and the Lord will continue to bring you until that day when the Lord returns. Right? He is doing the work. And you and I, this ought to bring us comfort and assurance and security because we have the sure promise of God. If you recall from Jeremiah in chapter 31, uh, which the author of Hebrews picks up in chapter 8, verse 10, in speaking of its, of its fulfillment found in Christ in the New Covenant, Uh, repeats it in verse 10, saying this, For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, God has promised to put His law in our minds and to write it on our hearts. He, by His power, will give us new inclinations. Not those inclinations that correspond to our old nature, but inclinations that correspond to our new nature. He will do it. This is why Paul says it is God who works in you to will. He turns our will and our affections towards Him. We don't do that. He does it. But not only does He give us the will to desire to obey Him, but He also gives us the very power to bring it to fruition. This is what we read in Ezekiel. Chapter 36, verse 27. As the Lord says, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. We see here it is the Lord who will cause us to obey. Right? This is the reason that we can work out our salvation. is because He has given us the Spirit. Right? Is we can obey because now we are working out in His power, not our own. We obey God because He has enabled us to obey Him. And Paul says that He has done it for His good pleasure. God has saved us for the purpose 
of creating us as His workmanship in Christ Jesus for the purpose, He says, of good works which He created for us before the foundation of this very world. And so Christians are those who are obedient, those who walk in His rules because He has given us a new will, new desire, uh, and the power to do so. He has given us those new inclinations. And so out of knowledge of what our Savior has done, out of thankfulness for what He has done, out of knowledge for what He has done, out of gratitude for what He has done, we obey all that He commands. And we are to do so until the end of our lives, not because you and I are persistent people, but because God will complete what He has begun. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I are no better than anyone else. The only difference here is that they are trying to work out their salvation by their own power. And by someone's own power, it will never bring about the perseverance of the saints. Because our power, apart from Christ, is a creaturely futile power which will one day eventually fade away. This is what John says in 1 John 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us, for if they would have been of us, they would have remained with us. And why is that? Well, Paul says in Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear before God uh, in the the eyes of the unbeliever. You see, as believers, we have respect. We have reverence. We have humility before the Lord. Unbelievers lack all of it. And why is it? Because they believe they are doing everything on their own. God, sit back, do what you're doing, and just be ready for me when I get to heaven. That's what they think. But this is because salvation has not come to their door. Their hearts and their minds have not God's law written anew upon it. And so upon knowing this, that we can only work because God has first worked in us, what should that produce in you and I? It should produce humility. It should produce humility. Knowing that apart from God, we could do no good thing should humble us. It should teach us to lose all confidence in ourselves. Every bit of confidence we have in ourselves, we should cast away, and every ounce of confidence we have should be given to the Lord. For all of salvation is His, and so we ought to rely solely upon Him. And we do that in prayer, asking Him for all that we need in order to live in obedience to our Lord. Yet also what we should learn is that we must be active in the Christian life. Right? God has blessed us with so many benefits under the sun. But we must put them to use. We must put them to use. And this means doing so whether people are around looking at us or they're not. For the Christian life is just that. It's a life. The Christian life is a life. Which means it's life lived whether we're at work, whether we're at school, whether we're out with friends, or whether we're home all by ourselves when no one's around. Does this characterize your life? Do you live the Christian life at all times, in all places? For this is the example which Christ has given to us. He obeyed His whole life, perpetually, at all times, in all places. And so Paul is calling on us. Let us strive to have that mind which Christ has had, in which we perfectly obey our Father, working out our salvation, walking in the way and imitating the One in whom you and I love above all else, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow your heads with me and pray. Father, we thank You for Your holy Word. We thank You, Lord, 
for godly men who have uh, written your word down that we might have it from age to age. We thank you, Lord, that you do not contradict yourself. Lord, that you speak clearly in your word. And you have told us, Lord, that salvation is all of your hand. And we thank you for this. Yet you also tell us, Lord, that we are not to lay idle and inactive, but you have called us to be active in sanctification. You have blessed us. You have given us the power. You have blessed us with your Holy Spirit. And now, Father, by the power you have given us and by the aid of your Spirit, we are to do those things which you have called us to do. We are to pursue holiness, to pursue piety, and to cast aside all evil. And so, Father, we pray this day that you would, uh, Lord, continue to cause us to desire to do those things which are pleasing in your sight. For, Lord, you have given us a new will. You have given us new desires. And so, Father, we pray that uh, we would quickly abandon all sin, all temptation which comes our way. And that, Lord, we would exercise holiness at the imitation of our our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would desire to be obedient at all and every part of our lives, whether people are around or whether we are all alone. For ultimately, Lord, even when we are alone, when we are all by ourselves, Father, You are still with us and You still see all that we do. And so, Father, we ask that You would aid us, that we would uh, do all that is pleasing in Your sight at every time and moment and place in our life, yet We know that we can only do this for you, Lord, have saved us. All our doing is a work of your work which you have done within us to both work and to will all that is good in us. And Father, we thank you for this. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.